0: Well, welcome today. Glad to have you joining. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you and I, that we are sinners, all of us. We were born sinners because we are descendants of Adam. And therefore, every one of us has inherited a sin nature, a natural bent towards sin. And because we are sinners, because we have lived in rebellion against God, in open treason against him, we are due his wrath. His judgment for our sins. But the good news of the gospel is that God sent his own son, Jesus, to suffer and to die, to be a substitute in our place on the cross so that we would not have to bear the punishment for our sins. And as a result, if we put our faith in him, we are saved through his grace. I mean, that's, that's the message of the gospel. And that's what the apostle Paul has been explaining from the very first verse of Romans chapter one, verse one, all the way to where we come to today at the beginning of Romans chapter six. And for most Christians, they have tracked very well with the apostle Paul to this point when it comes to the gospel. But there are some Christians that at this point make a profound error in understanding the message of the gospel. See, because at the end of chapter five, the Apostle Paul explains that even though our sin is great, the grace of God is greater. And when our sin is super great, the grace of God is even greater still. And there are some Christians who misunderstand what Paul says and therefore assume that we can just go on sinning. Because the more we sin, the greater God's grace. In fact, they assume that literally you can be a follower of Jesus and, and say the prayer at some point, but, but really live no differently. To sin all you want, live however you want. But in the end, you get to go to heaven. And this idea is such a profound misunderstanding of the gospel that it has actually been labeled as a heresy. It's called antinomianism, and it has floated around the church for over 2,000 years already. But it had it start all the way back in the earliest days when people misunderstood the gospel. And so the, the writers of the New Testament warned against this kind of thinking. Jude warns the church. He says this ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God uh, into a license for immorality uh, have come into the church. He says, beware of that. James warns that some people define faith purely as an intellectual assent to a set of Christian doctrines that has nothing to do with how they live their life. And he says that's no faith whatsoever. And the Apostle John warns in very stark terms, he says this, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. See, to think that you can be a Christian and not change how you live To think that you can be a Christian and just to continue to live in sin is not only a profound misunderstanding of the gospel, it is an open heresy. It puts you outside the orthodox understanding of what the Christian faith is all about. Now, the vast majority of Christians don't hold that view. The vast majority of Christians know full well that Jesus paid the price for their sins on the cross, and they also know that they need to live without sin in their life, that they need to battle against sin in their life. But the fact of the matter is that for many Christians, uh, you know, they, they've wrestled with sin in their life. They, they've tried to stop sinning in their life and they've found that they can't. And we're not talking like the big sins. We're just talking like the, the kinds of sins that, that we all wrestle with and, and they've wrestled with them and they've tried to stop and they can't. And in essence, they've kind of given up. They've just said, ah, I tried, I can't. The sin just keeps happening in my life. It is what it is. And then, and then they'll hear someone come along and say, actually, you know, you can't change your heart. You can't make the sin in your whole, whole life go away. God has to do it. He's the one who has to change your heart. And it's like this breath of fresh air in their life. They say, oh, oh that's so good. But, but if that's all you do, you say, okay, God, I can't do it. You have to do it. I'll just wait for you to do it. I mean, if you've done that for a while, you find out that the sin is still there. And that leads to a place where you start to say, well, maybe this Christianity thing doesn't work. I mean, I mean, maybe there isn't the power necessary to deal with the sin in my life. And, and so either people abandon the faith or they simply kind of settle for a mediocre like, oh, I, I, it is what it is kind of faith. But in Romans chapter six, the passage we're going to start looking at today and over the next couple of weeks, Paul says, no, it isn't just what it is. That God has actually given you and I all the power that is necessary to deal with the sin in our life. And it's the work of God in our life, but it also involves our own participation in that sin, uh, in dealing with that sin. And so we want to look at what the Apostle Paul teaches us about how to deal with the sin in our life. So if you uh, look, it'll either be on the screen or look in your Bible, Romans chapter 6. Beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul is responding to this idea that as our grace is great, or as the sin is great, God's grace is greater. And those who would say, well, therefore, let's just keep sinning because God's grace will cover it. Here's what he writes. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? The Apostle Paul says, look, if you're a follower of Jesus, If you've given your life to him, then therefore you have died to sin so you don't live in it any longer. Now, sometimes people assume that when Paul says that we have died to sin, he means that sin no longer has any impact in our lives. It's like this. If I were to heal over dead right now here on the stage, if I just died right here, I mean, you could come up and kick my foot. You could pinch my arm. You could throw a bucket of water on me or, or you could literally just roll me over the edge, thump. And I would do nothing in response. Why? Because I am dead. Now, people read what Paul says and say, see, sin should have no effect on me. I should be like bulletproof when it comes to sin. Except that's not the case, is it? Certainly not the case in my life. I struggle with all kinds of sin. And I'm pretty sure you do too. So that's not what Paul is talking about. So the question is, Paul, what do you mean died to sin? What are you talking about here? Because I still struggle with sin. And Paul, he's going to explain what he means in the next verses. In verse 3 and 4, he says this. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Paul says, you remember when you came to faith and were baptized? You remember that, right? I mean, Paul simply expects that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you would say, I am a Christian, that you have been baptized. And I I talk to people who say, well, I want to follow Jesus, but I I don't want to be baptized. They say, well, I'm intimidated to get up in front of all of those people. I get it. You're like an intimidating crowd. No, 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 of course not. I mean... If you get baptized, everyone in this room is, is leaning forward. They're leaning in, they're cheering for you. Of course, they, so don't be intimidated. You don't have to say anything in the tank because all you have to say is like, yes, I do. Others would say, well, look, it's, I mean, I became a Christian. I've been a Christian for years and years. I never got baptized. If I got baptized now, what would people think? And my answer is like, who cares what they think? What does God think? Does it honor him? Is it something that Jesus asked you to do? And don't worry about what they'll think. They're going to cheer anyway. They love it. But don't worry about that. Paul's expectation is that you, if you're a follower of Jesus, have been baptized. And he says this, when you're baptized, when you go down into the water, it's, it's symbolic of the, of, the, uh, of, of the death of your old life. This symbolism is so important. This idea that you have died to your old life. In fact, the early Christians, when they built their churches, they actually built a separate room for baptism. And they built that room to look exactly like an ancient Roman. I mean, this was back in that time, in the ancient Roman time, to make it look exactly like a, a funeral room, like a mortuary. In other words, their idea was this. If you come to be baptized, you enter a room that looks like a place where they bring dead bodies. Why? Because they wanted you to understand that when you are baptized, you are saying, my old life is done and dead. It's gone. In fact, they built their, their, Baptist, their, their baptismal tanks in different ways. Some were built in the shape of a cross, cruciform. So that literally, when you went under the water, you went like as if you were being crucified. They want you to know the old life has died. Others were shaped in the shape of a womb because they wanted you to know that you have died to your old self and you've been born anew by the waters of baptism. See, there's this imagery in baptism of the dying of the old self. It doesn't matter how that where you're baptized, whether it's in a in a in a room that looks like a mortuary, in the shape of a cross, in a you know, a baptismal tank that looks like a womb, one that looks like a hot tub, the lake, the river. I mean, it doesn't matter where. What matters is what it says about what has happened in your life. I was talking to uh, uh, one of the guys in our church who was involved in prison ministry, right? You know, there's some prisons down the road here. And and, uh, he was uh, leading Bible studies there. And he met a guy from Uzbekistan who had immigrated here to Canada, started running with the wrong crowd, ended up in prison, came to faith in Jesus. And he said, I want to be baptized. But of course, prisons don't exactly have a lot of places where you can be baptized. So they, they went to the warden and they said, look, can we bring in a kiddie pool so we can baptize this guy? And the warden said, no. So they went back. They said, well, how are we going to do this? How are we going to have this, this imagery of going under the water and coming back out to new life? And then they saw a garbage can. So they went to the, they went to the warden and they said, would you mind if we baptized him in a garbage can? The warden said, Okay. Go for it. So this guy from our church, he took a half day off work. He went to witness the baptism. They took this garbage can into the shower room, filled it up with water. The, the, the guy climbed into it and scrunched down. But when he scrunched down, it only, he, he only could get down up to his neck. But the whole idea is that you go totally under. And so the, the, the chaplain okay, you ready? And he comes up behind him, grabs his head, and just shoves it down into the garbage can. There's water thrashing everywhere. There's splashing. And then the guy pops up with his big grin on his face. And he says this, oh, the old man doesn't want to die that easily. I mean, what he's saying is, is my going under represents the old me. That doesn't die so easily, but he gets what it's all about. See, it's what the apostle Paul is talking about here. Your baptism, which symbolizes your coming to faith in Jesus, is about dying to your old way of life and beginning a new way of life. That's what Paul means when he says that you've died to sin. Not that sin will never be a factor in your life. Not that you will never be tempted by sin. But you no longer live under the realm, under the control, under the dominion of sin in your life. Rather, you live under the realm, under the control, under the dominion of the kingdom of God. Under the rule and reign of Jesus. See, the way that Paul begins this conversation about dealing with sin in your life is this way. He says this, you no longer have to live in sin because you have a new identity. That's what he means. If you don't want to live under the power of sin in your life, then this is the place where you have to begin. By understanding that you have a new identity. James Clear, in his book, Atomic Habits, talks about the three layers that are necessary for change in a person's life. Now, he's not talking about sin. He's talking about in general. He says this, if you want change in your life, if you want something out of your life or do something new, he says you, most people begin with, with uh, choosing uh, the, the layer of changes about outcomes, the results. They say, well, I want to lose weight or I want to publish a book, or I want to be on a championship team. They start by saying, this is what I want. And that's where most of us start when it comes to change, our desires. Because there's a a, a second layer that is necessary for change, and that has to do with the processes. You don't just wish something into being. You don't just say, you know, "I, I, I wish, I wish that I would lose weight. It doesn't just happen unless you, unless you actually implement a a program to go to the gym. You don't just write a book unless you develop a habit that says, I am going to sit down every day for two hours and write on my book. You don't become a championship, you know, on a championship team unless you join a team and practice your heart out. You need to have systems and habits. And the same is true when it comes to sin in our life. Most of us start with the outcomes. We say, we don't, I don't want to do, have this pride in my life anymore. I don't, I don't want to have this anger that explodes anymore. I don't want to deal with the lust in my life anymore. I, I don't want to gossip anymore. We start with the outcomes. But then many Christians never get past that. They say, well, I hope that doesn't happen anymore. And the second part of change is that you need the process. You need the systems and the habits. I mean, if if selfishness is an issue in your life, you need to develop a habit of generosity. You need to set up a plan that says, I'm going to regularly be generous and sacrifice. If anger is an issue in your life, you need to set up some, some, some tools. Like when I get really mad, I'm going to count to 35 and I'm going to say a prayer, God help me before I open my mouth. If lust is an issue in your life, then you're going to put filters on your internet and have accountability. I mean, we have, we have a men's group that meets here for guys who are wrestling with this very thing. Meets here on Monday nights, and they don't just sit around in a circle saying, oh, I wish that I didn't struggle with porn. Oh, I wish. No, no. They set up systems and habits and plans so that they can deal with sin. It's a biblical thing. The second way that you deal or that you have change in your life is, has to do with the process. But at the deepest level, at the most profound level, Genuine change in your life begins with a change of identity. That's why the Apostle Paul starts here. It it requires a change in how you think about who you are, your worldview, your self-image, your judgments about yourself and the world around you. And when you change that, it makes a profound difference in how you bring change in your life. So imagine two people who are trying to resist cigarettes. The first person says this. When someone offers them a a smoke, the first person says, no, thanks. I'm trying to quit. Now, it sounds really good, doesn't it? No, thanks. I'm trying to quit. But, but, But that person still believes that they are a smoker who is trying to be something else. They're hoping that their behavior will change while they still believe that they are a smoker. The second person, when they're offered a cigarette, they say this, no, thanks. I'm not a smoker hear the difference? No, thanks. I'm trying to quit. No, thanks. I'm not a smoker. The second person says, I once was a smoker, but I don't do that anymore. It's not who I am. Their identity has changed. Now, again, both of those people doesn't mean that they won't be offered cigarettes. Doesn't mean that they won't be tempted. But it means that they understand their relationship to cigarettes totally different. James Clear writes this. True behavior change is identity change. What you do is an indication of the type of person you believe you are, either consciously or subconsciously. Research shows that once a person believes in a particular aspect of their identity, they're more likely to act in alignment with that belief. After all, when your behavior and your identity are fully aligned, you're no longer pursuing behavior change. You're simply acting like the type of person that you already believe yourself to be. James Clear tells about a friend of his who lost a hundred pounds by asking herself this question, what would a healthy person do? This question guided her all throughout the day. Would a healthy person walk or take a cab? Would a a healthy person order a salad or a burrito? And and she figured that if she acted like a healthy person long enough, eventually she would become a healthy person. And she did. And see, this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. 2,000 years before James Clear wrote it down in his book. You have to understand that when you came to faith in Jesus, something profound and mysterious and powerful happened in your life, you received a new identity. But you have to live in it. You have to understand you're no longer a sinner who's trying to quit sinning. You are a child of God, saved by Jesus Christ, who lives a totally different lifestyle. Augustine, the great father of the, of the church, um, before he came to faith in Christ, he lived a, a wildly sexually immoral life. But after he converted to following Jesus, one day he was walking down the street and he looked up and he saw one of his former lovers and immediately he turned around and began to walk in the opposite direction but she had recognized him and she called out to him. She said, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine kept going and he said, yes, but it is not I. He said, I'm a different person after I came to know Jesus. Do you understand what Paul is saying here? Do you understand how important it is that you understand that you have a new identity? Because out of that, out of that comes the foundation for which to deal with the sin In your life. Doesn't mean that you won't have sin in your life, but it means that its power is broken in your life. In fact, that's what he says next. In verse 6 and 7, he says this. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Another translation puts it this way. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ. So that sin might lose its power in our lives. We're no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. Sin doesn't go away. Sin, We still wrestle with sin, but it no longer has dominion over us. It is no longer the master to whom you have to answer. And this is where Paul starts. Paul starts by explaining that at the deepest level, you have a new identity. But it isn't just a new identity that makes it possible for us to not live in sin. Paul says that there's another reality at work in your lives. Here's what he says in verse 5 and 8. He says this, We have been united with him in a death like his. Sorry, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. And in verse eight, he says, now, if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. So Paul says this, not only have you died when you're baptized, not only do you die to the old self, but when you're raised up, you are joined, you are united with Christ in his resurrection. Now, this The word united that he uses there in Greek, it has this idea of this organic connection so that you can hardly tell where one part of one thing ends and the next part of another thing begins. Kind of like this, if you climb a mountain way up high and from the top of that mountain, you look out over the, 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 the mountain below and you see thousands of trees. But from that perspective, they look like just one carpet of green on the side of the mountain. You can't tell where one begins and the next one, where one ends and the next one begins. And, and he says it's the same when it comes to our relationship with Christ. We're so closely connected with Christ that his resurrection power flows into our life. And this is the second reason why you no longer have to live in sin. Because you have a new power at work in you. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the presence of God Himself in your heart and in your life. There is a new power available to you and I that those who don't follow Jesus don't have to be able to resist the power of sin in our life. In other words, you don't have to do this on your own. You don't have to do this entirely in your own strength. It's not just about gutting it out till you get it done. The Spirit of God himself dwells in you and gives you strength and warns you and calls you and comforts you and works in your life so that you can resist the power of sin in your life. It's a beautiful gift. It's a powerful gift from God. But you still have your part to play, right? I mean, you know, when you came to faith in Jesus, when you first gave your life to follow Jesus, you understand that it was God who chose you, right? Right? It was God who who brought your life your spirit alive so that you could hear his call in his life. It was God who invited you. God who who paid the price by sending his son. God did all of those things. It was him who who led you to faith. But you still had to you still had to accept what Jesus did. You still had to commit to follow after him. It was God who did the the lion's share but you still participated with it. And the same is true when it comes to saving us from the power of sin. Because That we were saved, now we are being saved from the power of sin. And the expectation is that God has given you a new identity. He has given you the power of the Spirit in your life. But you still have a part to play in this. And this is what Paul talks about next. Here's what he says in verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Paul says this, you have a new identity, you have a new power, the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life, but you still have to consciously choose to reject sin in your life. It's like this. It's like this. Imagine that there is this country that is at war. There's different factions warring with one another within this country. And one faction, with, power, with the help of an outside army, overwhelms and overpowers the other faction. And that faction that, that wins that war becomes the ruler of that country. Now, the other faction, they don't just pack up their bags and go home and say, oh, I guess we lost. We're going home. No, no, no. They just become a different kind of army. They become a guerrilla army. They disappear into the forest and sneak out at unexpected times and unexpected places to attack. And see, this is the picture of sin in your life. You're no longer under the dominion and power of sin. You're now under the dominion and power of Jesus Christ in your life. But sin still sneaks out in the most unexpected places an unexpected time and attack you because it wants control in your life. And when that happens, you can't just do nothing. Either you're going to join the power of sin in your life or you're going to battle against it. You have to make that decision. Paul says, when that happens, when you're tempted by sin in your life, he says, do not uh, offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Now, the word that... that We use an English instrument is kind of a weaker version of the Greek word, which literally is translated a weapon. Paul says when sin attacks in your life, don't let any part of yourself be used as a weapon for the powers of sin in your life. Don't let your, your hands or your feet, don't let your mouth, don't let your words, your actions, don't let any part of you be used by the powers of darkness and sin to bring destruction into your life Or the life of others. You know, as a a pastor, I have the privilege to walk with people through all kinds of things. And sometimes I end up with a close-up seat. uh, uh, Sort of a front-row view of the the devastation and destruction of sin in a person's life. Because they have offered up parts of themselves as, as weapons for wickedness. In their life, in the life of people around them, I mean, I've watched as people have destroyed perfectly good relationships because because they of the words that they won't stop saying, or the pride that they simply won't let go. If they just did, it would restore a beautiful relationship. I, I I've met with people who are a shell of themselves because. They have made choices that were easy in the moment, that felt so good in the moment, but they've done it for years and years and it has hollowed them out and left them fragile and broken. I've sat with and listened to, to, to people who have abandoned the joy and the hope that they had of following God because they have repeatedly offered some part of themselves as an instrument to the forces of sin in their lives. But you don't have to be a pastor to see that. I mean, just look around you. Just open your eyes to see. I mean, let me warn you again. Let me point out what is achingly obvious, but so rarely is said. And that's this contrary to what the culture screams to you. The greatest threat to your peace, to your joy, to your contentment, and your happiness has nothing to do with how much money you have or don't have has nothing to do with whether you're married or not, or if you think you married the right person or not. It has nothing to do with you, the career you have or don't have, or if you get the recognition you think you should or don't. The greatest threat to the things that are most important to you, your peace and your joy and your contentment and your happiness has everything to do with what we're talking about right here. It has everything to do with the sin in your life because it wants to destroy all of those things. There is a battle going on. And it's not just in the lives of Christians. I mean, whether you identify as a Christian or not, there's this battle going on in your life and you can't just ignore it. You can't just wish it goes away, wish it wasn't there. You're gonna decide. Are you gonna allow sin to bring destruction in your life or are you going to battle against it? You know, the Apostle Paul says this, this is this. Don't offer any part of yourself as a weapon of wickedness. And then he says, do the opposite. Offer every part of yourself to God, he says, as an instrument, as a weapon for righteousness. Think about that. Offer every part as a, as a weapon for righteousness. So think about the love that God has given you, the, the patience or the, the joy, the, the, the self-control. I mean, use those things, not just, oh, those are nice things that Christians have. No, no, those are weapons in this battle. Offer them to God as a weapon of righteousness in your life. And again, as a pastor, I've had the privilege to see this in action. Sadly, less often than the opposite. But boy, It is powerful. It is powerful when people offer themselves as a weapon for righteousness. I mean, I've seen someone who is deeply hurt choose to forgive. We talk about it all the time, but they actually did it. And it was electric what it did in their life and in their relationship with that person. It was, it was unbelievable. It was so life-giving to watch. I mean, someone who is selfish, who, who begins to give their life away, to sacrifice. I mean, it's electric what happens. I've watched as wives who have felt unloved have chosen nevertheless to respect their husbands. And husbands who have felt disrespected nevertheless choose to love their wife. And I've watched as marriages have been renewed and restored. It's almost magical to see Except it's not magical. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. When people choose to give their parts as, as weapons of righteousness rather than wep- weapons of wickedness. Look, when it comes to sin in your life, you are not helpless. When it comes to sin in your life, you are not, you do not have to be defeated. When it comes to sin in your life, you are not powerless. You have a new identity that you're operating from. You have the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life, which means that you no longer have to live in sin because you can and you must make a choice not to sin. See, don't don't do what many Christians do. They confuse the potential for resisting sin, which God has given to us with the responsibility for resisting sin, which God expects from us. You need both. You need both the power of sin, a power of God in your life and the willingness to be obedient and do what he calls you to do. Here's how Paul ends this section. In verse 14, he says this. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. It's fascinating. Verse 12, he gives a command. He says, do not sin anymore. But by verse 14, he, he says, ah, now it's not a command. It's a promise. It's a promise. Sin shall not rule in your life. Sin will not win its war of rebellion against God. Sin in the end will not establish its cruel dominion over the people of God. Holiness. A life set apart so that sin does not control or have dominion in your life is not only expected, it is the promised birthright of those who are followers of Jesus. So don't be discouraged in your battle with sin. And don't give up. Don't just say it is what it is, because that's not the case. It isn't just what it is. God has given you everything that you need in this battle against sin. And he's promised that in the end, you'll be victorious. But until that day, should you ignore the sin in your life? Paul says, by no means. You have died to sin, and therefore you can no longer live in it. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, it's a a heavy topic that we're talking about today. It's so much easier to try to ignore the sin in our life, to just pretend it isn't there, to to treat it like something that we just don't really need to worry about. But Father God, you know that that brings destruction in our life. You know that that brings chaos into our world. Father, you know it brings pain and sorrow and brokenness. And none of those things are your desire for us. And so God, we pray that you would open our eyes to understand what your word says. And then Father, that you would grant us the courage to live in it to live in light of the new, the, the new identity that we have, to, to lean into the power of the Holy Spirit. And then, Father God, in this battle of sin, to continue to choose, to consciously choose not to, to sin. God, would you grant us that courage? Would you, would you strengthen us for what you call us to? Father, so that we might live as people who are holy and set apart, who bring honor to you because of who you are. So we thank you. We trust you. We continue to follow after you, no matter the cost. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, thank you for joining us again today. Uh, There is just value in continually sitting under God's word and allowing it to form and to shape our lives. Let me send you out with these words from the writer of Hebrews. He says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. May we live in light of the grace that God pours into our life through Jesus Christ. God bless you. Have a great uh, day. We'll see you next Sunday.